If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 119. Our section of verses begins in verse 17, and it runs through verse 24. This is week 3 of 22 in Psalm 119. And we'll just jump in with some basic things about Psalm 119 and then try to make sense of this section in particular. Uh, What we're dealing with in Psalm 119 is a poem. It's an acrostic poem. It's based on the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so you'll find 22 sections in Psalm 119. Most English translations, I hesitate to say all, but most English translations recognize that this is an acrostic, and they actually title each section with the name of the Hebrew letter assigned to that particular section. So 22 sections, eight verses in each section. The first letter of the first word in each of those eight lines of poetry is that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet assigned to that section. So we've gone through the Aleph section and the Beit section, and this morning we're looking at the Gimel section, or the Gimel section, and you can see over on the right 17 through 24, and then you can see all of those Gimels right there as you read your Hebrew from right to left. So we're dealing with this third section. The subject of every section in Psalm 119 is the Bible, the written Word of God. The whole psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, all 176 verses is about the Bible. Almost all of the 176 verses in this chapter make some reference to the Scriptures. We haven't got to any of the verses that don't. There's just a handful of them, and when we get to those, we'll note them, and we'll talk about why. Maybe there are a few verses that don't reference the Scriptures. Uh, There's a number of words used in Psalm 119 to refer to the Bible. I just want you to look at our section, and we'll scan through it quickly. In verse 17, he refers to the Bible as God's Word. In verse 18, he calls it, Uh, God's law. In verse 19, it's the commandments. In verse 20, it's the rules. In verse 21, it's the commandments. In verse 22, it's the testimonies. In verse 23, it's the statutes. And in verse 24, again, it's the testimonies. Uh, All of these words are more or less used interchangeably to just drive us back to the overarching subject of the written Word of God, the inspired and the Holy Scriptures. This was an important reality for the Hebrew people. It was something that set them apart from all the other peoples. The very fact that God had spoken to them. And not only did He speak to them audibly, but He spoke to them in the Scriptures. And they had a written, permanent, unchanging, perfect copy of God's Word, God's revelation to His people. And the Scriptures did a number of important things in the life of the Hebrew people. In particular, the Scriptures answered four questions for the Hebrews. The first question is, who is God? Because you understand that when the Hebrew people were walking around in Old Testament times, there were lots of ideas about God out there. Every different people, group of people that you talked to had their own idea about God. And the Scripture said, no, this is the one true God the Creator God, the Holy God. So it answered the question, who is God? It also answered the question, who are you? Who are you as human beings, as the Hebrew people? Well, you're created. You're created in God's image. You have value. You have dignity. You have worth. But you're also sinners. 
The Scriptures revealed that to God's people, that God was holy and that they were not holy. They had fallen short of His glory. The Scriptures told the Hebrew people how God would act to save them. What would God do to save them? And this is described in a number of different ways throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes that salvation comes in a real, immediate, concrete situation. And sometimes, even when it's in an immediate situation, it points forward to the future salvation that the Hebrew people were looking for. Lastly, not without importance, the Scriptures told the Hebrew people how to live as God's covenant people. If this is the truth about who God is, and this is the truth about who you are, and this is what God is going to do to save you and make you His own, how should you live your life? What should your lives look like? That last question gets to the big idea of this section of Psalm 119. So for the Gimel section, here's the big idea. The Word of God tells us how to live as sojourners on earth. How should we live our lives as sojourners on this earth? Occasionally, I see a post on social media. Sometimes you see this on a t-shirt. People refer to the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, as basic instructions before leaving earth. You'll probably never forget that. Basic instructions before leaving earth. And even as I present it to you and say that you'll probably never forget it, as your pastor, I'm saying to you, I don't really like that phrase. I think it's close to right, close enough to sort of resonate with God's people in certain ways, but I don't think it's the best way of talking about the Bible at all. For one thing, the Bible is not a basic book. Now, the Bible is clear in its overarching message, and the main things in the Bible are plain. They're clear, and they're without question. But I don't know if you've ever tried to read through the entire Bible. It's not basic. It's not an easy book to work through and to put all of the pieces together. So it's not really basic. And secondly, it isn't first and foremost a book of instructions. You understand, that's how the Pharisees approached the Scriptures. It's just a list of rules. What are we supposed to do? Check them off the list. You better check enough off before you leave this earth, otherwise you're going to be in trouble. But that's not what the Bible is most basically. It's not most basically a list of rules. Most basically, it's a story. And it's a story, are you ready for this? I think you've heard it recently, that answers four questions. Who is God? Who are we? What has God done to save us through His Son, Jesus Christ? And in light of those truths, how should we live our lives? It does have instruction. But that instruction only makes sense when you understand the truth about who God is and you understand who you are as a sinner and you understand what Christ has done to save a people for His glory. And then and only then are we ready to talk about this idea that God instructs us about how we ought to live our lives. When, when we think about the Bible as instruction, it's not tips and tricks. It's not spiritual life hacks to make things easy or simple or better. But it is instruction on how we ought to live our lives as the people of God who have been saved by His grace 
and for his glory. And so we're going to wrestle with this truth this morning. How should we live as sojourners on this earth? Take your copy of the scriptures. We'll read verse 17 down to verse 24. The Bible says this, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I've kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Father, this morning, we pray that you would forgive us when we love this world and the things of this world. Help us to understand that this world is not our home. We are strangers here. We are exiles here. We are sojourners here. Give us hearts that long for your word. Give us hearts that long to be with you. Give us hearts for long and, uh, that long and desire for the glory of your presence. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1952, a man named C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And you've heard me refer to this book on a number of occasions. You've heard me refer to this quote on a number of occasions. But I just want to share with you something that Lewis said some 70 years ago now, thinking about our home and where we belong and how we can experience fulfillment and true meaning in our lives. Lewis said most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And if that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or an echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. You desire in your heart meaning, purpose, fulfillment, peace, wholeness, rest. This world offers it to you in a thousand different ways, and they all fall short. And God offers it to you in the gift of eternal life in His Son, Jesus Christ. And you have to remember that all of these earthly things that promise to give you this sort of rest that you're looking for, 
They're not going to be able to deliver, but they're given to you to arouse that desire and to make you long for your true home, which you only arrive at, you'll only be part of after death in the next life. So that's C.S. Lewis, an apologetics book from 1952. Let me share another quote. This one's simpler. 1980, a man named Squire Parsons wrote a gospel tune called Sweet Beulah Land. We sing this song often at our church on Wednesday nights. We sing it at funerals for our loved ones and our friends who have gone on to be with the Lord. The song says this, I'm kind of homesick for a country to which I've never been before. No sad goodbyes will there be spoken, for time won't matter anymore. Beulah land, I'm longing for you, and someday on thee I'll stand. There my home shall be eternal. Beulah land, sweet Beulah land. That word Beulah comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 62, verse 4. And it's a promise from God to His people that even though now they are separated from Him, one day they will be, as it were, married to Him. A Beulah land in Hebrew is literally a married land or a place where God's people are together with God. And what C.S. Lewis was describing in an apologetics book, he's trying to make the Christian faith reasonable to thinking people, is the same thing that Squire Parsons was writing about in a gospel song when he's trying to articulate the hope that we have as believers. And it's the same thing that the Bible speaks of from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. It's the very simple truth that you are not home here in this world, in this life, if you are a believer. This world is not where you belong. That is not your lasting home. It's not the place where you should expect to find rest and wholeness and meaning and value and all of those things, but that ultimately you're looking for an eternal home and you're longing for a home that you have never been to yet, but a home that's being prepared for you even now. Now, we're going to get to the question in a moment of how should the Word of God shape us as sojourners in this world. We're going to get there, but first I just want you to think with me about what it means to be a sojourner. There's so many things we could say biblically, again, from Genesis to Revelation. I just want to very quickly point out a few basic truths as you think about what does it actually mean as the people of God for us to say we are sojourners in this life and in this world. There are two places in Psalm 167 where he refers to himself as a sojourner. One of them is in Uh, verse 19, he says, I am a sojourner on the earth. So what does that mean? We go all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. We could talk about God creating Adam and Eve, man and woman, mankind, to live in his presence and to enjoy his presence. But we'll just jump ahead a little bit to Genesis chapter 3 and say that sin has resulted in separation between God and his people. It wasn't how God intended it to be in the beginning. He intended to be with his people He was with Adam and Eve in Eden, but sin resulted in separation. Adam and Eve listened to the serpent rather than to God. They were forced out of the garden. They were removed from the very presence of God. Now, it's important to understand that when God created Adam and Eve in the beginning, He created them as human beings with a body and a soul, and He placed them on this earth. There is a real sense in which you belong here. God created us to live here, 
on this earth. And in the end, there will be not only a new heaven, but a new earth. And God's people will receive new bodies. And we will again live on this earth. So when we say that this world is not our home, we don't mean that we're really aliens. We don't mean that we really belong floating on clouds up in the sky. What we mean is that we belong to be with God. And our sin has resulted in a separation between us and God. Even in Genesis 3, as that separation was being enacted, there was a promise that God would fix what our sin had ruined. And so all the way through the Old Testament, the, the heroes of the faith, the men and the women who trusted in the Lord, they believed that God would make good on His promise. They had faith that God would fulfill His promises to save His people. They looked forward to these things with faith. You see a description of this in Hebrews 11. We won't read it all. You read about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. There are others that follow in Hebrews 11, but once you get up through Abraham and Sarah, you come to Hebrews 11:13, and you read this verse. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They're sojourners. They have faith in the promises of God, but they don't receive all of it in their lives. And they died, Hebrews 11 says, having not received all of these things, but having seen them from afar and having died in faith that God would keep His promises to save a people. Ultimately, this is why Jesus came, is to fulfill the promises of God, to bring these promises home to our lives. It's why He lived, it's why He died, it's why He was raised from the dead. In fact, Jesus on the night before he died on the cross told his disciples that he was going to go and prepare a place for them. A place. I'm going to prepare it for you, to get it ready, and I'm going to come back for you. Now you can read this in the Gospel of John. It's an amazingly beautiful passage. And it's equaled by what we read in Revelation chapter 21 that says, in the end, the dwelling place of God will be with His people. And if you're the kind of person who accepts homework from the pastor on Sunday morning, take John 14 and read it with Revelation 21 and understand that in the end, this place that Jesus is preparing is not just a place that He's going to take us to, but it's a place that He's going to bring to us. He's going to bring down to this earth. And once again, the dwelling place of God will be with his people. Read those verses and read them as a sojourner. Now here's the point as we come to Psalm 119. As we're sojourning, as we're strangers and exiles now, as we're looking forward and waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns for his people, we need the word of God to guide our lives and to shape our lives. Yes, we need the Word of God to tell us who God is. Yes, we need the Word of God to reveal our sin. Yes, we need the Word of God to tell us the good news about Jesus Christ. But as we're sojourning, we need the Word of God to guide us and to direct us and to tell us how we ought to live our lives. And so that's the question we're going to wrestle with in Psalm 119. How should the Word of God shape our sojourn on this earth? 
Just one quick disclaimer to set the stage. I said this a moment ago. I don't have any tips for you this morning. I don't have any tricks for you. I don't have any spiritual life hacks to pull out of Psalm 119 to say, look, if you will just do A, B, and C, your life will be awesome. I don't have any of that. What we have in Psalm 119 are guiding principles that shape the way that we think about our lives as sojourners. And they are helpful, and they are true, and they are life-changing. But they're not just little simple pieces of wisdom that you might pull out of an advice column in the self-help section of a newspaper. Guiding principles that shape our lives from Psalm 119. The first is this, the Word of God defines the purpose of our lives. If you are a sojourner, the Word of God must define the purpose for your existence. Why am I here? What is the purpose of my time on this earth? You have to look to the Word of God to answer that question. And you see in verse 17, the psalmist says, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your Word. Sometimes in the Bible, the most important words are connecting words. Just little small words that connect phrases together. And in verse 17, the word that is really important. His request is in the first part of the verse. Deal bountifully with your servant. Be gracious to me. Be good to me. Pour out your blessing on me. Look after me. Why? That so that I may live and keep your word. The psalmist understands that the purpose of his living, the purpose of his life, is keeping the word of God and allowing the word of God to shape and define his very existence. He sounds an awful lot in verse 17 like the preacher that we heard from a few months back on Wednesday nights when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes. And the preacher comes to the end of all of his searching for the meaning and the purpose of life and what is it all about and how do we make sense of it all. And he says this in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes 12, keep the commandments. Psalm 119.17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep, same word, keep your word. Now let's just acknowledge, implementing this truth in our lives isn't easy or natural for any of us. It's easy to talk about the word of God shaping our lives. It's not easy or natural for any of us. And you understand, when I talk about the Word of God shaping the very purpose for your life, I'm not talking about keeping the commandments of God so that you can earn your way into heaven someday. Nobody's talking about that. Nobody is suggesting that you ought to set out from a sermon on Psalm 119 to keep the Word of God so perfectly that you can earn your way into heaven. That won't happen. It can't happen. You're a sinner. You've fallen short of God's glory. You can't earn your way with God. We're simply talking about allowing the Word of God to shape our lives, to set the trajectory and the direction for our lives, and to define the purpose of our lives. 
Last week we sang an old Rich Mullins song. And I listened to another old Rich Mullins song just this last week. And in that song he says this, The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. If you're a sojourner on this earth, you know that competition. You know that there is stuff in this world, on this earth, that competes for your allegiance, your commitment, your devotion. There are a million things in this world that say, look at me, follow me, chase me. I will give you the meaning, the purpose, the fulfillment, the happiness that you're looking for. It's a fierce competition. It's most fierce today because of the influence of a worldview that has been passed down to us that has its origins really decades, centuries ago, and it's articulated most simply by a man you've probably heard of, Frederick Nietzsche, who said, God is dead. Sometimes we look back at Nietzsche in this famous quote and we say, oh my goodness, he lived a long time ago. I can't believe someone would say that. They would just come out and say that God is dead. Can I let you in on a little secret? In Nietzsche's day, most people believed that. He wasn't unique. Most people believed that they had no use for God in defining the purpose of their life, that they could figure it out all on their own. But at the same time, they were doing this weird dance and still trying to sort of hold on to a Judeo-Christian worldview. And do you know what Nietzsche did? He just ripped the Band-Aid off. He just came along and said, look, we all believe it. God is dead. And as a result, you can do whatever you want. In fact, Nietzsche said, not only can you do whatever you want, but you ought to, you must do whatever you want. He said, you should be a, a superman. That was his term long before DC came along. You should be a superman. What is a superman? Superwoman. It's a person who is courageous enough to agree with that statement and to define their own purpose in life. If you go to any self-help section in any bookstore, that's all they have to offer you. There is no God. Define your own purpose. If you listen to any self-help podcast, and there are lots of them, that's the sum total of their wisdom. There is no God. Create meaning and purpose for yourself. The psalmist takes a different path. Verse 17. We talked about the word that and the idea of keeping. Did you hear what he called himself in verse 17? Deal bountifully with your servant. And he says it again down in verse 23. Your servant will meditate on your statutes. Servants don't do a lot of defining their own life, do they? Servants don't say, I'm the boss, do they? Servants serve. Servants listen to a master. They follow the commands of another. And the psalmist is saying, I don't want to be the boss. I'm not trying to be the boss. I'm just a servant. Look what he says in verse 18. He's begging God to open his eyes. Verse 24, he's going to listen to God's word as his counselor. He's not trying to define things for himself, but he's asking God to open his eyes to the truth, and he's saying what we just sang. Give me eyes to see and give me ears to hear your word. Counsel me, advise me, direct me on what the purpose of my life 
ought to be. Verse 20, he says he's consumed with God's Word and he is longing for God's Word. His purpose is defined by the Word of God. You have to wrestle with this question as a sojourner. What is defining my purpose on this earth? Is it the wisdom of this age? Is it the stuff of this earth? Or is it the Word of God? How should the Word of God shape our sojourn on this earth? Number two, the Word of God warns us about the danger of disobedience. Warns us of the danger of disobedience. Look at verse 21. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. That verse kind of stumped me this week. Reading through Psalm 119, all the things that he says, your word is great, it's my counselor, I want to listen to it, Uh, I want to be your servant, I want to keep your commands, all of these positive things that he's saying. And then he just sort of pumps the brakes in verse 21, and he says... You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. And I, I just thought to myself, why did he say that? Why did he feel the need to stop in the midst of all this positive talk about the Word of God and say something negative? I don't mean negative like it's a bad comment. I just mean that it's a negative thing. It's not something that he's positively going to do, but it's God rebuking his enemies who ignore his Word. I think the reason he said it is that as a sojourner, when you commit yourself to find your purpose according to what the Bible says, when you make that fundamental commitment, it is not going to take you long to look around and to see people who have not made that same commitment who seem to be doing better than you. You understand what I'm saying? You're going to make this commitment to say the Word of God is going to define the purpose of my life. I'm going to listen to God, open my eyes. Your Word's going to be my counselor. I'm your servant. You're the boss. Here we go. You're going to make that commitment. You're going to look around. You're going to see people who have not made that commitment, and you're going to compare their situation to yours, and it's not going to take you long to to begin to think, they seem to be doing better than me. I seem to be struggling, and they seem to be getting ahead. When you reach that conclusion, good news, you're not the first person who sought to define their purpose by the Word of God who's reached that conclusion. In fact, if you would take your Bible and just flip back to Psalm 73, we can talk about a man named Asaph who wrestled with this very issue. Asaph looked around one day and he said to himself, I know that God is good to His people. It's good to be close to God. It's good to listen to God's Word. I know these things, but he started looking around at the wicked and the insolent and the arrogant and the prideful and the rebellious, and he said, their lives seem to be pretty nice. I mean, they don't get sick more than we get sick, and they seem to have more money than me at times. They seem to be enjoying things more than I might be enjoying certain things. They seem to not have all the problems that I'm wrestling with. And he basically starts to question God and to say, is this whole thing worth it or not? Because it seems like these wicked people are getting ahead and getting away with all of their wickedness. And he wrestles with this until he comes to verse 16. Psalm 73, verse 16. Worship, 
is the thing that reframed his thinking. He said, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. That's until I went to worship. Then I discerned their end. Whose end? The wicked's end. He begins to think clearly. Verse 18, truly God, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, and it's so easy for our souls to be embittered and to play this comparison game that Asaph played. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Psalm 73, verse 18, you set them in slippery places. You despise them as phantoms. Verse 27, those far from you will perish and you will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. You understand there is great danger in disobedience. The greatest danger. And when you look at those who walk in disobedience, and you begin to say to yourself, it looks like they're doing pretty good. You have to reframe your heart and your mind and your thinking just like Asaph did in worship. You have to remind yourself of these truths. You have to go back to Psalm 119. You have to look at verse 21. God rebukes the insolent accursed ones who wander from His commandments. You know, earlier we read Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Can I just read you the very next verse, the very last verse? In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or bad. For people who are going to stand before a holy God as sinful people, that's bad news. Every secret thing in your life, every bad thing in your life will be brought into judgment. None of it will just be swept under the rug. The overarching story of the Bible is that you have two options. It is not an option whether or not you will stand before God in judgment. You will stand before God in judgment. One option is that you can stand alone on your own merits. And all of your good and bad will be brought into judgment. And if that's the option that you opt for, the wrath of God will overtake you and overwhelm you. The second option is that you can stand not alone, but alongside the Lord Jesus Christ who lived for sinners and who died for sinners and who offers to clothe sinners in His righteousness. There is great danger in disobedience. How should the Word of God shape our sojourn on this earth? Number three, 
the Word of God does not promise us an easy sojourn. This is why I want to make plain to you that I'm not offering you tips and tricks and spiritual life hacks this morning. One of the things the Word of God does is it sets our expectations for what we should expect in this world as sojourners, in this life as sojourners. Look what he says in verse 22 and 23. Take away from me scorn and contempt. I've kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Sounds like a rough spot to be in. He's experiencing scorn. People are holding him in contempt. And there are people who are actively plotting against him. That sounds like a rough day. Now, guess what? It's going to get worse before we get out of Psalm 119. Much worse. Scorn, contempt, and plotting. The psalmist is honest about suffering. He doesn't pull any punches. He's just honest about it. That's true of Psalm 119, and it's true of the book of Psalms in its entirety. I don't know if you've ever read through the book of Psalms from chapter 1 to chapter 150. If you've done that, you may have come away saying, there's a lot of complaining in the book of Psalms. The biblical word is not complaining, but it's lamenting. There's an awful lot of Psalms. In fact, the most common type of Psalm is a lament. It's people bringing their problems to God and saying, God, this is rough. It's really rough right now. And being honest, at times, saying things that sound completely irreverent to God about their circumstances and their situations. And some people read that in the book of Psalms and they're off-put by it. And they say, oh, you shouldn't talk to God that way. Some people read it and they say, why would you want to serve a God who can't fix all these problems or who won't fix all these problems? who promises you these difficulties. Like I understand the psalmist in verse 22 and 23, he's asking God to take these things away. But when you read the entirety of Psalm 119 and the entirety of the book of Psalms and the entirety of the Bible, there is no reason to assume that God, because you ask Him, is going to take away all the difficulties that you face in life. No reason to expect that whatsoever. And some people are off-put by that. And say, well, why would I worship and serve a God who's not going to fix all of these things? I don't know about you, but I'm actually comforted by it. And I think it's encouraging because I think it tells us that the Bible is an honest book. The Bible's not just saying to us things that we might want to hear or telling us that it can be the way that we might want it to be. The Bible is just being honest, which is a good thing in my perspective, of saying this is how it is. And the book of Psalms is saying to you, whether you're having a good day or a bad day, whether you're prospering or you're suffering, you ought to talk to God about it. On your good days, you ought to thank God for those days. And you ought to know that they are a gift from Him. And on your bad days, you ought to know that God is still God and He will be faithful to His promises. That's the perspective of the psalmist. That's the perspective the psalmist is asking you to embrace in thinking about the Bible defining your life. He's not promising us an easy sojourn. The book of Psalms never says to you that life will be easy. The Old Testament never says this. 
Jesus never says it. In fact, Jesus, sounding an awful lot like the psalmist in Psalm 119, said this to his disciples in John 16, verse 33. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have tribulation. You're going to have tribulation in this world. But I'm saying this to you not to make you a pessimist. Not so that you'll complain or be grouchy. Not to scare you off. I'm saying this to you that you can have peace. In this world, you'll have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. I think about this last point and I think about the song that we just sang. I think about the disciples following Jesus at a difficult point in his ministry and in their lives. A point where many people were walking away from Jesus because he wasn't making everything the way that they wanted it to be. And Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? And they looked back at Jesus and they said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Father, as your people, this morning we're grateful for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for speaking truth to us. Father, we pray that we would be people whose lives are defined by your word. Our purpose, our reason for existing is defined by the scriptures. God, help us to be warned of the great danger of disobedience. Lord, help us to be people who take refuge in the Lord Jesus and who are clothed in His righteousness. We thank You for fulfilling Your promises to save Your people. Father, we pray that You would help us to know what to expect in this life, in our sojourn, to know that You've not promised to make it easy but to promise uh, to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, to promise to give us peace even in the midst of tribulation. So, Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for its honesty. We're thankful for its power. And we pray that uh, this morning we would submit ourselves under the authority of your word, that our thinking and our feeling and our living and our talking and our singing uh, would be shaped by the scriptures. Lord, we want to sing to celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in him, that your saving promises have been brought to fruition, and that we will know them fully when Jesus Christ returns. So, Lord, be honored in our worship. We offer it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.